You are listening to Living in the End Times with Amos and X, a podcast about politics and prose, theology theory, hijinks and pranks, and the everything and nothing to come.
All right, here we are. Here we are. Are you trying to make me cry at the yeah. start of the show? That's what I do. That's what you do. Motherfucker. <laughs> Misery accomplished, <laughs> Amos. I'm trying to inspire hope, and that's probably Excellent. painful at first. It is at first. Yeah, you know, the whatever. Uh, what's the Zizekian thing? Uh, the, 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 the truth is painful, etc. Put right. on the sunglasses, they live. And all that. Or we could get a little liberal and <laughs> talk about Toni Morrison. Now, when something comes back to life, it hurts first. <laughs> Here you go. Zizek likes Toni Morrison, though, so maybe she's not too bad. I like yeah, Toni Morrison. I, okay. you know, I tried to read uh, Beloved, and it was like it was. I stopped not because it was bad. I just it, it was. I couldn't handle it. It was so heavy. Like, There's it was like tough. The other, the one I read was. Um, it was like, the bluest eye. Or something. Yeah, yeah, that shit's fucking. You have to sit there and read. A ch- basically, a child molester justify themselves yeah. in the first person. It's fucking heavy. Um, so it's like Lolita then, but probably better. I think it's darker because yeah. there's like a much stronger sense. Like there isn't even a sense of equality. I assume that in Lolita, he thinks he's just in love. Like that's the idea. Sure. And so that's what causes all the... Um, whatever is interesting for the reader in terms of trying to sort that out. But this is just very brazenly not that. Sure. Uh, it's much, I suspect, much darker. So, yeah, it. she's she's definitely doing, she's uncovering a lot of mm-hmm. darkness, which right. is certainly something we support, as painful as it may be. <laughs> we endorse, yeah. for sure. But well, on that note, who was who was that? Give some that credit. That was Mother's. Okay. Um, the song was It Hurts Until It Doesn't. Let's hope it doesn't soon. Yeah. But not too soon. But, so as an antidote to some of this pain, perhaps, um, we're going to start out with the round two of the Democratic debates. That's right. The first night. We're sitting, we're recording as the second night is taking place, but it's like... It's a loser debate, like to a whole nother level. So that's right. We're not even bothering. Why bother? Inter- uh, watching it, and the first one was probably pretty worthless too, but not this part. I do know when I wrote the damn bill. <laughs> Healthcare is a human right, not a privilege. I believe that. I will fight for that. Congressman Delaney just referred to it as bad policy, and previously. He has called the idea political suicide that will just get President Trump reelected. What do you say to Congressman Delaney? You're wrong. <laughs> Medicare for all is comprehensive. It covers all health care needs for senior citizens. It will finally include dental care, hearing aids, and eyeglasses. But you don't know second that. of all, you don't know that, second Bernie. of all, we'll come to you in a second, I do know when I wrote the damn bill. The truth is that every credible poll that I have seen has me beating Donald Trump. I think if we're going to force Americans to make these radical changes, they're not going to go along. You, you throw your hands up, but you, right. you haven't... In- <laughs> oh, I can do it! What do you do with an industry that knowingly, for billions of dollars in short-term profits, is destroying this planet? I say that is criminal activity. That cannot be allowed Thank to continue. You, Senator. I get a little bit tired of Democrats afraid of big ideas. Republicans are not afraid of big ideas. 
They could give a trillion dollars in tax breaks to billionaires and profitable corporations. They could bail out the crooks on Wall Street. So please don't tell me that we cannot take on the fossil fuel industry and nothing happens unless we do that. What I am talking about and others up here are talking about is no deductibles and no co-payments. And Jake, your question is a Republican talking point. By the way, the healthcare industry will be advertising tonight on this program. They will be advertising tonight with that talking point. The hospitals will save substantial sums of money because they're not going to be spending a fortune doing billing and the other bureaucratic things that they have to do today. Second of all, maybe you did that and made money off of healthcare, but our job is to run a nonprofit healthcare <laughs> system. We need to have a campaign of energy and excitement and of vision. We need to bring millions of young people into the political process in a way that we have never seen by, among other things, making public you, colleges Senator. and universities tuition free and canceling student debt. Thank debt. you, Senator. If anybody here thinks that corporate America gives one damn about the average American worker, you're mistaken. Stand up and take on the greed and corruption of the ruling class of this country. Let's create a government and an economy that works for all of us, not just the 1%. There you go. That was a beautiful thing. Yeah. Every <clears throat> second of it. So I think it's worth noting that when Jesus was in the temple overturning right. the money changers' tables. This is Gospel of Mark, I think. He had a fucking horse whip. And so, like I said to my friend last night, did you ever consider that Bernie did not come to bring peace but a sword? <laughs> and so I, I yeah, think... Absolutely. And I think we should just lean into the fucking messianic shit here because that's obviously ruled the day. Mm-hmm. You have a, a Jew who has been walking in the desert for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Literally, there were times where he was giving congressional, uh, well, not testimony, but he was speaking in front of subcommittees where there was literally no one in the right. room. Right. Exceptional. No, this is exceptional. Um, and I was just for, I don't know if it matters, but for the context for anyone who didn't see the debate, and again, there's maybe not much reason to watch other than what you just heard. Uh, we had Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders kind of flanked by a series of, um, uh, I guess, goons, with the exception of Marianne Williamson, who were sent to attack those two. And as we just heard, Bernie, I mean, it was, it was almost effortless on his part to destroy the moderates. And it was beautiful. Yeah. So, and, and, and so then to your point, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, I'm sensing exactly what you're saying, this sort of not, I mean, this radical dude coming into um, the temple and pissing off the Pharisees, and it's, it's not going to be easy, and it might be um, dangerous in some ways for a time, but that's good. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's the only hope that we have. Right. So, <clears throat> like, we haven't recorded for a week or two or something mm-hmm. like that because our interlocutor was uh, away in his own sort of desert <laughs> known as Canada. <laughs> right. um, but in the meantime, the, the climate situation has just seemingly accelerated. There was a new, uh, a new story, I think, in The Guardian that they were like, you think we have 12 years left? Try 18 months. Meaning if we're not radically changing things planning and planning how to do that 
for that 12-year period within the next 18 months, we're basically locked into climate change that we can't control, mm -hmm. full stop. Um, and what I've been saying to people is the Bernie or bust idea from 2016 is even more, the stakes are radically higher than was even intended by those people. Because mm -hmm. it, it, in its literal sense, it just meant we're voting for, it's either Bernie or fuck it fuck it all because it doesn't matter what happens uh, in the election as a hopefully a means to just unify behind this message but now what I think is I don't think liberal democracy survives without Bernie which I've mentioned before on the show I think it's just intensifying its importance as we go forward and so um, I think the best the other thing I realized watching at least clips from the debate because Jesus Christ, I'm not going to listen to fucking John Delaney talk for 20 minutes out of my life. Um, the whole purpose of the this debate format is so that what happened last night would happen, which is the DNC sends all their shooters at Bernie. Mm -hmm. But thankfully for us, the DNC doesn't have any fucking shooters. Mm -hmm. They're all ballless, bald fucks. They're worthless haircuts who have nothing to offer and no counterpoints to anything. And so it almost, and this is, of course, not what the DNC wants, but it almost played like they were there just to make Bernie look better because that's how it did play. Mm -hmm. And Liz Warren, you know, deftly and intelligently got, just stood behind Bernie mm -hmm. and aligned with him, which is, to me, almost the most hope-inspiring moment because she understands... Like, she's the perfect, as, as much as I have problems with her, uh, some of the things she says about capitalism and her kind of weakness in the Senate in some ways, she is the perfect vice president because she, nobody wants her to be president, really. Um, so if, if she's Bernie's number two, she will be effective, I think, mm -hmm. since she, she'll, she will have done more than Joe Biden in terms mm -hmm. of progressive policies or whatever. No doubt. Um, and she's a she sort of like plays herself as a lieutenant anyway, and so like if that's the pair, that's the fucking pair. But if we don't get Bernie, we don't get anything mm -hmm. because there's no other movement to be had. Like Matt Chrisman said on Chapo, Liz Warren may have mostly good policies, but she has no theory of change. Bernie's the only one with the theory of change. Mm -hmm. And I think like the other thing that we need to keep keep in mind on the left and to not lose nerves about is the and this is from the Zizek clip we played a few weeks ago about climate change and the fear that the that smart conservatives had that if Trump does a state of emergency to uh, build the border wall or whatever close the borders then they perceived rightly that if a progressive president gets into power he can do the same thing for a climate emergency mm -hmm. and Bernie's already signaled that with uh, Omar and I think AOC when they mm -hmm. suggested uh, declaring a national climate emergency. Corbyn's already declared a national climate emergency in the UK. If Bernie gets into power, take all this bullshit that Trump's done and turn it against the fucking power structure, at least somewhat, that's the only way that we have any fucking hope. Mm -hmm. And so it's exciting in, in a kind of dark sense that this really could happen. Right. And it probably will happen short of cataclysm. In, like, this might break democracy because Bernie has not promised to back the Democrat no matter what. 
which means if he goes third party, the fear in 2016 I would hear from people is that Bernie will split the Democratic vote. Bullshit. He's pulling from Trump. He's definitely pulling from Trump. He'll pull way more from Trump as an independent than he will as a Democrat anyway. Mm -hmm. If you split the vote, Bernie definitely wins. If you split the vote, it won't go Trump or, I mean, who are they going to split it against? Like, even if it's Liz Warren or um, Joe Biden, if, if the Bernie people in 2016 weren't swayed by the, all the establishment propaganda against him, they sure as fuck aren't going to be swayed in mm -hmm. 2020. Right. So Bernie's sort of unstoppable again, it, assuming he sticks to his druthers, which it's, he's, he definitely wasn't talking like this as strongly right. this early on I agree. in 2015. It's even more bold now. Yeah, and so <clears throat> he's set the tone. He's setting he's already set the agenda. Everything they're talking about is either it's like it's like uh Zizek's buddy Frank Ruda said like there there are like basically three moments in modern philosophy. Plato, Descartes, and Hegel. And the reason mm -hmm. is because after each one, everything that came after was a reaction to the, right. the original. And so everything post-Hegel is a reaction to Hegel, one way or another. Everything in 2020 is a reaction to Bernie Sanders. Because what is Trump going to... Like, Trump's just going to keep being Trump and sort of playing angles he thinks he has. So he'll mainly go after, you know, assuming he adopts basically a similar Steve Bannon-esque... Mm -hmm futurist oriented uh you know nightmare factory he'll just be talking about immigration and shit yeah. bernie's probably the only one who can even answer on immigration even though he hasn't really up until this point so what we need is we need the left to stop shitting their pants about bernie not being radical enough except wake the fuck up and accept the fact that if we don't get bernie we don't have a future mm -hmm. Like, we don't even know how bad the California wildfires are going to be this year, which um, our, my co-host and I will probably be bearing direct witness to in Los Angeles. Oh, man, yep. <laughs> I hope not, but we're headed there in a, in a few weeks, and we'll, uh, dear listener, we'll report back on just how bad they are. But, and how good the tacos were. <laughs> and on that note, I was only going to say, too, to, I mean, there's a lot of things we could do with climate and d debates. We don't need to spend too much more time on that. But uh, Greta Thunberg is coming to the U.S., right? Or she's here? Mm. Remind me what's going on there. I, that I don't this know. This is the Swedish... The Swedish uh, Woman, girl, I forget how old she is. She's a 16, I think. Okay. Who's, uh, again, sort of, I mean, telling, telling truth to power when it comes to this climate stuff. Um, and she's she, bringing her message to the U.S. So here's a short video about it. Starting. I would really like to go there because I decided to try to take a sabbatical year from school. And uh, the problem is that I don't fly because of the enormous climate impact of aviation. So... Uh, after a long period of thinking and thinking through every possible option, I have decided that sailing will be the best option to get there. Taking a boat to North America is uh, basically impossible. I have spent months, I have had counters of people helping me, trying to contact different boats and so on, and it is almost impossible. And finally I found a boat uh, that was um, optimal. And I'm not saying what people should be doing. I'm not saying that people should stop flying. I'm just saying it needs to be easier to 
to be climate neutral. I don't um, care about hate and threats from climate crisis deniers, so I mean, I just ignore them. It is hilarious to see them because they are so desperate. They are just, if they, can't, if they don't have anything to complain on, they just make something up. And um, I mean, that is both very sad, but also very funny. She's right. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> and it's interesting that she's taking a sabbatical year because that's like a huge fuck you to people who right. are like stay in school. And she's like, why? Mm-hmm. If we don't have a future, what am I staying in school for? I've been thinking that with my employment status recently. Right. Same Same here with <laughs> just just in general. Like to what degree, and maybe this is the question for the left in general or should be, is how long does this go on, this rolling collapse, until we decide that it doesn't matter anymore what the debtors say or what the fucking renters say, rentier class says? Because that sort of slavery only holds any water if one's acting with an an eye toward the future. And we certainly talked plenty about contextualizing how desperate people are and how they need health insurance and their kids taken care of. That's all true, and that's all informing everyone's, maybe defining everyone's Mm -hmm. decision-making process. And if we don't get Bernie, that's never going to fucking end. So what future are we building for anyone, ourselves or our children or whomever? And it's also interesting that what she's doing, you know, this sort of like nonsensical, let's say, um, move to sail across uh, the Atlantic Ocean to North America when she doesn't need to. Um, she, there's this Bartleby sort of withdrawal, like refusing not to participate, mm-hmm. even though she fully admits, and this is probably why it's radical, is that she doesn't necessarily, she doesn't even have an s- alternative to flying mm-hmm. um, because it's impossible. But that f- precise impossibility is what she's staging right. as the deadlock. Right. And ultimately, like, it's been pointed out recently that you know, even the most radical fringe of whatever Bernie's saying doesn't really come close to a true leftist position, that it's still ultimately like New Deal liberalism. However, that in this context is fucking radical. And so mm-hmm. what we maybe need to re-inject or re-inoculate people with is the idea that a real leftist position is nationalized industry, nationalized health care, because Medicare for all is still not technically nationalized health care. And it should, that's what we should be aiming at. Mm-hmm. But it's it would it would radically disrupt the capitalist enslavement to the medical apartheid the insurance scams the pharmaceutical scams mm-hmm. it would just so vastly improve everyone's lives that it is that radical within this context um but to say that to for a revolutionary the the adherence to what is required of you by the society is ultimately in, in material terms, meaning like play the capitalist game, go to work, shut the fuck up, whatever. All of that is reactionary and ultimately serving a fascist interest. And so, um, I think the left needs to give itself permission to reject all of that and not just do weekend activism and not just do whatever socially appropriate, um, pre-digested bullshit 
masquerading as resistance and start to ask ourselves, what kind of world do we want to build? Because a question people have been asking me recently is like, should, should the left arm itself, is the left arming itself in the U.S., you know, given this potential for civil war, um, or what, in my view, the reality of the coming civil war short of Bernie, and even that might not be enough. Um, I say, no, it's a terrible idea, and I'm not just saying that to, like, hedge. I'm saying, number one, there's so many fucking guns in America that it's not going to come down to who has more guns. There's more guns than people, so that's not the issue. Um, but more importantly, the way that things might break down is so multivariate. I highly recommend the podcast, It Could Happen Here, where he lays out several uh, possible scenarios for a second American Civil War, all of which are largely compelling. I actually think he's too modest in his predictions a lot of times, but the case studies are very worth considering, especially if one's new to the idea. Um, But that what, and this is something that he does suggest, which I agree with, that the the most effective model for trying to hedge against the civil war or to understand the reality of it and try to act in accordance with that possibility on the left, the most radical way to do that is to start building mutual aid networks locally in a sort of similar to an anarchist sense, but not purely reducible to that like we don't need to assume the state's not going to exist because that's totally unclear we have no fucking idea um but mutual aid networks themselves can be useful in the short term but also in the long term in terms of establishing and maintaining links of solidarity amongst people that you know or you know in your region and then building upon that a sort of coalition of the left that will be able to coordinate locally regionally and nationally in the event that shit breaks down because we should never assume that the right wing knows how to fight a civil war because they they don't really i mean they've they've been like their examples of like effectiveness like bundy ranch and pushing the state back that was just like that was just toe-to-toe cops don't want to it's not border patrol aren't going to put their life on the line to serve like cattle warrants or what like that's who gives a shit they don't care enough to die for it and it's also just a bad look to be shooting armed civilians protecting someone supposedly protecting someone's property or whatever um over what amounts to like a bureau land management bureaucratic question that most people don't even have any context for um but that we shouldn't assume that they're going to do fare better than us in a moment of social breakdown. The left historically has always been the ones generally who have been able to flourish if they're organized. Whereas like one of the most interesting things about that It Could Happen Here series was he was talking about the common sense notion that the the horror of the Holocaust had to do with how highly bureaucratized everything was. But what he points out is the reason that they had to do it in Poland. The reason, like, why is Auschwitz, why is Birkenau in Poland and not in Germany or France? Part of a huge reason why was because the French state still existed, ultimately. They they were occupied, but uh, who is it? Um, De Gaulle or whatever was still technically in power, I think. Uh, Whoever the president was. 
or was it Petain? I can't remember. Anyway, yeah. like the, the French state was not destroyed. They did have torture chambers there um, and that kind of thing, but they did not have this at scale extermination. So why did it happen in Poland? Well, Poland was previously occupied by the Soviet Union and there was a Soviet style bureaucracy that was being formed. But when the Nazis took over and beat them back, and kicked them out, there was no state left. That's the opportunity to do this large scale killing. And Bannon himself had pointed out in this documentary about him that I watched called The Brink, um, he was like, Auschwitz, like when you see pictures of Auschwitz, it looks, it, it doesn't look that, it, it just looks like um, a university because that's what it was. It was a university they took over and they put up some fences and stuff, but it wasn't a death camp. Birkenau is where all the killing was happening. And that's where, like, when you see pictures of that, he was saying how terrifying it was that people were able, that's where he was like, people sat in a fucking room, he wasn't swearing probably, but people sat in a fucking room and made a bunch of decisions calmly and collectively collectively about how to just exterminate these people. And he's saying that's like a terrifying prospect and we should all keep that in mind on that point. I fully agree. Um, but that's why like Zizek has always been critical of anarchists who are like, Oh, get rid of the fucking state. Zizek's like, I've seen what happens when the state breaks down, like in ex Yugoslavia, mm -hmm you immediately just have like the worst horrors and barbarism, right. people getting castrated and getting their balls shoved down their throats. I also think that that's why in certain places in Yugoslavia, um, that's why you had concentration camps, rape camps, that sort of just like utter horror because you had this again, quasi Soviet style state that just totally collapsed. And then, so in that, in that absence of a state, these horrors can emerge. So it's only again, and that's and it's important to note, especially in the Nazi example, they had systematically purged the left from the country way years before they ever came after the Jews. They came after the anarchists and communists first. Mm -hmm. The reason they do that is because then that's your whole site of resistance to this type of horror. And so the thankfully this the potential civil war we're approaching is not going to look like that because there's no right that has any modicum of power or centralization close to what the Nazis were able to do, at least not at this point. Um, therefore, there will always be a left around in some one form or another to push back. It's just all the more reason that as as my as a friend had pointed out like he's like i didn't think i'd get to a point where the i thought that as a leftist the most important thing i do could do would be to save the constitution but that's maybe where we are mm -hmm. i fully agree bernie's so important because it's not just because like you know at a banal level he has the best policies which he does or that i like him personally which i do it's that the the question again, like Zizek says, for the true revolutionary is the the true revolutionary is always ultimately conservative because their question is not what exactly do we want, but what do we if we don't act, what happens? That and so it's fear based at that level. If we don't get Bernie into power, what happens with a two term Trump? How much more dismantling can they get away with? Because I think if the just like in twenty sixteen. A big part of why the 
the Democrats lost Congress fully was that they, without the, the momentum of someone like Bernie, there was no way, f- no coattails to ride on. No, you couldn't, where are you going to ride Hillary Clinton's coattails to? Neoliberal land? Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't, it's not real. So similarly, we're not going to get a real blue. Or it is, but the rent is super high. <laughs> yeah. And nobody wants to go there. Right. Uh, whereas in 2020, we may get a real blue wave on 100% because of a Bernie Warren ticket or Bernie Tulsi or Bernie whoever, Marianne, mm. God willing, inshallah. Um, but <clears throat> the, the bottom line or whatever is that he, he's the only one speaking to the real problems directly to the people in a short circuit fashion. And so I'll let you respond and then I'll kind of like, I'll kind of give an antidote to that horror. Sure. No, that's, um, that was my sense of last night as well. And just where the campaign has been going very generally with, with Bernie and, and again for, to her credit, Warren, although, you know, in a, to a lesser degree. Um, so you mentioned Marianne and I've been, again, very, since that first debate, very much more interested in, in her. And I think you mentioned it off air that sort of post debate, she was the highest search term on, on Google or something, right? Even more than Bernie. Yeah. There you go. Um, meaning that sort of, she's, people are interested in what she has to say or a certain, uh, I guess, demographic, a certain type of person. Um, but she didn't get a lot of, um, space or attention on that debate yesterday, but she, the one, one segment I did see when I was the 10 minutes I was watching or, or 20, she was not afraid to call out everybody on that stage, maybe with the exception of Bernie and Warren saying, you guys aren't even Democrats. This is embarrassing. Like how, how can you call yourselves Democrats? Um, and she's absolutely right. And that's sort of the same thing. I think Bernie had, or Warren had made that point too, but she was doing so. I mean, she was serving the point I'm getting at is sort of the Mike Gravel role since he was cheated out of this debate, <laughs> no, pulling everybody, including Bernie, you know, pulling them to the left um, and sort of making uh, sort of serving as that foil for Bernie and, and, and Warren um, and just doing so effectively to the point that you made earlier where the whole the, the DNC and the moderate Democrat sort of middle middle ground establishment party just it looked completely anachronistic it mm-hmm. looked like it didn't even need to exist and it and as we know it doesn't right so here's a like, part of that clip anyway and the entire conversation that we're having here tonight if you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of the collectivized hatred that this president is bringing up in this country then i'm afraid that the democrats are going to see some very dark days yeah and so maybe we wouldn't be as metaphysical as she is because she seems to believe that sort of shit um but she's talking about what we're talking about, yeah. which is that I agree. if we don't take this seriously, things are going to get much, much worse. No, and part of me wants to, I mean, there's a, a lot of my liberal friends uh, obviously just dismiss her um, outright. And then I have folks who even farther to the left, you know, borderline democratic socialists and so on, too. They're disinterested in Marianne's position or her rhetoric because it does seem so new agey and spiritual and I guess, you know, Harry Potter-ish. But... Again, if if we read that against the grain or just buy into that, I feel like she's saying, as you said, she's saying the exact same things Bernie is saying, but she's mm-hmm. putting it in sort of more philosophical terms, not new agey, but she's she's speaking to the notion that there's there's 
there's some sort of zeitgeist happening here that we can't quite articulate or put our hands on, but it's shaping this whole debate or it's shaping the direction the country's going, and she's trying to address that in ways that I think are necessary. Yeah. Well, and just Googling her, Marianne Debates, like the, the top search things were that clip I played you, which was from a New York Times article. Uh, this is a Vox article, and Vox is, of course, very good at like giving us the absolute like mainstream centrist view. Right. The title is Marianne Williamson isn't funny; she's scary. So like they're literally fucking terrified, mm-hmm. uh, which and, is good. Right. And then the New York Daily News, which is no liberal bastion, Marianne Williamson is the big winner of the DNC debates, especially if she doesn't get the nomination. So, and then the I think it's this one. Well, she was the. Not only was she the top searched candidate after the debates, she was the top searched candidate in 49 out of 50 states. Wow. So The 50th being, I suppose we don't know. Yeah, who knows? It's in North Dakota, was it? Um, <clears throat> I'd be disappointed in us. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Just, I'm sorry. It's just not important. I, you're right. <laughs> um, but, like, uh, you know, as a friend was noting, like, I was saying Bernie or Boston stuff, and she's like, I like I like the Orb Lady too. This is my friend from the UK, and I was like, Yeah, she's good. Hmm, what do her and Bernie have in common? Let's see. Oh yeah, they're both Jews. So like, and I'm saying that as you know, like I've said many times before, a pro pro Semitic, like intellectually and otherwise. But I think it's not insignificant that like these are the only two who are willing to really push against the yeah. grain because. The you know the other examples of prominent Jews in the Democratic Party have been these hardcore centrists like right Al well Chuck Schumer Al Franken Chuck, yeah Chuck Schumer or like Joe Lieberman is probably the arch sure. example, um, but you have like the outsiders willing to be outsiders, which is I think the important yeah. point, um, <clears throat> and Marianne at no point you know like she doesn't deny her. Jewish heritage, even though her like new age stuff isn't like aimed at that um, spiritually. But I do think that, you know, I I think I've mentioned it on the show before. I think that the strongest argument for Marianne is the dark horse of this race, which I think she is meaning much like Trump coming from nowhere. And she's going to last a lot fucking longer than anybody thinks is because like Trump, exactly like Trump, she's the only she's the only person in that field besides Trump who believes in something transcendent or even right. pretends to. Right. And that means a lot more in terms of what someone's able to do rhetorically mm-hmm. than people probably assume given this media landscape or the cynicism of politics. But I think it's only aided by the fact that we live in a reality TV world. Like I watched the um, Netflix documentary about uh, Cambridge Analytica called The Great Hack. And the woman who was the real whistleblower, um, she was saying, so Cambridge Analytica was working with the Trump campaign, working with the Brexit campaign. The CEO, I think, lied in front of British Parliament saying that they weren't involved, even though she could prove that they were uh, directly. She was saying that when they were consulting on the Trump campaign, Trump's war room or whatever was literally the fucking set of The Apprentice. So Trump staged his campaign 
from literally a reality TV stage. That's studios. That's where we are. Yeah. That's the, that's the political, the dominant political reality is reality TV. And, and like I've said, you know, going back almost four years, uh, the reason Trump won is because he figured that out before he figured out that's what politics was or had become, or, you know, he maybe aided it and pushing it in that direction before anyone else did. And so that's why it's even more important for Bernie to be this messianic and be this divisive Mm -hmm. because that's the only shit that fucking plays anymore. Right. And so I think, um, and I probably mentioned this last time, but I think what will probably happen, and so this is partly a f- fantasy at the level of a, you know, a Freudian sense of a dream being a wish or whatever, uh, but I think it's fully likely that who's left standing at the end of this as the debate, as this debate pool shrinks, it's going to be Bernie, Biden, or Kamala Harris, and Marianne. And then what will happen ultimately is Marianne will step back and throw her support behind Bernie, just like she did with Mike Gravel. And <clears throat> if she's able to do that, that's the most politically savvy move she can make. And mm-hmm. I think she knows that. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to add that, um, is, you know, tonight is the loser debate. But I listened to a, an interview with Andrew Yang, and he's actually becoming more radical mm-hmm. over time. So... When I saw him on Joe Rogan, I didn't watch all of it, but it was it was pretty bad, and a lot of it was just Joe Rogan being a moron, yeah. like, oh, what are you, you just can't give people money, they'll be lazy, you know, just this meathead bullshit that is literally, right. like, Joe Rogan hasn't, by his own admission, hasn't really had to worry about money for, like, 20 years, right. so he's not in a position to, like, say any of that anyway. Sure. If I could just interrupt who I saw, I heard Andrew Yang on, I think, uh... The, inter- uh, the deconstructed podcast that the Intercept does with Mehdi Hassan, and again, I was less impressed than I wanted to be, and this was like two months ago or three. But and so to your point, but oh, he's getting yeah. more radical then, so or more yeah. interesting, right? So he's being interviewed on Chapel Trap House by Virgil, um, and it was it, it it kind of ended up being twist, like there was a weird twist because Virgil was trying to kind of catch him out on Chapel. Also interviewed uh, Marianne for the record. And that was pretty interesting. But um, Yang was like his whole position on the, uh, what he calls a freedom dividend. So universal basic income, give people a thousand dollars a month, gratis, uh, no, um, no strings basically, mm-hmm. which is, and they've done experience with universal basic income where they, if you just give people money, their, their lives get better and they become more economically productive. If you don't, make them keep applying for it. You just give it to them and just let don't even tell them what to do. Just let them go. Um, and it's a pretty obvious, like we know this in America, social security was established prime initially by FDR as a way to push money back into the economy. They were giving it to older Americans on condition. They spent all that money every month. Well, what does that do? It creates a bunch of economic activity, feeds into small businesses, feeds into local economies, mm-hmm. And it's just, it's all positive. And this has been, a, even economists, which who are largely just like cretinous ideologues, have admitted for a long time, you give money to rich people, it produces no economic production. You give money to poor people, it produces loads of economic production. Right. That's Yang's kind of like general position. 
and Virgil was trying to catch him out on stuff like, well, what about disabled people if they have to choose between the freedom dividend and the, uh, their benefits already? Yang had sort of already begun to walk back some of the restrictions. Like, I don't think anymore you have to choose between food stamps and the $12,000. I think you just get both. He's also in support of Medicare for All, unconditionally. Nice. And his, his method of fundraising for this is the value-added tax. So what that means is he was pointing out how, like, the way it's structured now, the, the big tech companies just hide their – they move to Ireland because Ireland's a big tax haven. They don't have to pay any taxes. So Bezos can make $125 billion a year in profits or whatever it is. He pays no taxes in the U.S. So none of that money gets back to the people who produced all that value. So value-added tax means at every stage of production you tax the – you tax the raw materials, you tax the vendor, you tax Amazon, you tax whatever. Um, and then the, the criticism of the freedom dividend is, well, won't Amazon just raise their prices to compensate for that to offset their costs? To which, this isn't Yang's argument, but Yang's, well, I'll give you Yang's argument, then I'll tell you what I think he maybe should have said. Yang's argument is there's literally no other way to get the money from them. As it stands now, we get nothing from them. So this is already a vast improvement. As far as like increase in prices, what I would say is, even if that's 100% true, and it probably is without some sort of way to regulate it, and maybe there is, um, but even if that's true, you still have people buying shit that they couldn't afford before. The fact that it costs more doesn't negate the effect economically of the situation, and it still buys people a little bit of breathing room, which is the whole fucking point. Mm -hmm. It's not supposed to be a panacea. And this is the other point they come at people with, like, well, if this is supposed to replace people's income, and they were a truck driver making $42,000 a year, this isn't going to cut it. Sure, but as opposed to what? And so the... But here's where it gets more radical. Yang was like, this is not my idea. This idea was forwarded by a former SEIU leader as a built-in strike fund. So you're paying people in unions an additional $12,000. Let's say they go on strike. They have that money coming in no matter what. And so this is a fucking left-wing idea. And that's what I was really digging, was he was willing to go that far. And he's also, as he's a... Um, like, uh, Virgil was like well, why does the freedom dividend only go up to age, whatever, 75 or something? He's like, we changed it. It's, it's till expiration, so till death. So all of that money for people on fixed incomes, and that's on top of Social Security, because before they were thinking, well, maybe we will stop Social Security. No. He's like, that's, a, that's an annuity you're paying into, so no, we're not going to take that away. So at every step, he's getting more and more left-wing. Nice. And so I think that's a fucking extremely important because um, as an idea, like I don't think Yang thinks he's going to win the fucking primary. They've already, I think, fucked him out of the September debate. So he's kind of like, they're scared of him. Yeah. Just like Mike Gravel. Um, to be forwarding this idea in a way that keeps getting more and more left wing as time goes on is the future probably of what will need to be considered. And that's kind of agreed upon one way or another. Now you can say that the UBI is reactionary because it placates people. Okay. But it also may free people up to do right. 
other shit. Probably more people than are placated. Yeah. Or lazy or whatever. Well, placated, the left-wingers, the uh, the leftists would say placated like they won't rise up then. It's actually the fucking opposite. The more, the only time you get revolutions is when people have a certain level of material security. Which is probably evidenced by why we haven't had one in the U.S. Why we keep people poor, right? Yeah. That's extremely important. Also, Yang apparently is pro-nuclear power. And I don't think anybody else is except Cory Booker. I do think Bernie can be swayed. I do think AOC can be swayed. But that that's lobbying work that would need to be done. But again, like to even have someone that forward-looking and futurist in a left-wing sense, mm-hmm. utopian, that's extremely important as like a factor of the debate. You know whether or not it gets very far. And so like the so then the question may be. I'll let you respond in a second, but then the question may be, how do we get from here to there? So as we, we, we began, or you started the discussion saying, Bernie's doing the messianic thing, and we need to lean into that. And I totally agree. And I hadn't known that uh, Marianne Williamson... Uh, Williams? Yeah. Williamson, yeah. I, has a back, I mean, she's Jewish, right? I didn't, I didn't know that. And so that's, that's fascinating on the level that I'll get to. But, I mean, uh, my sort of the the allegory I wanted to run with is starting to break down when you talk about uh, Andrew Yang and his radicalism and there are other figures we can look at too but I was like okay so if Bernie's Jesus then Mary Ann's going to be his John the Baptist right and she's going to sort of pave the way if you will um, and end up sort of metaphorically or otherwise sort of giving her life so that this other guy goes um, forward but then I don't know what that means for Andrew Yang he's like the the rock of the church he's Peter or something and then I mean we could just go on and on and there's right. this inter- like very interesting theological allegorical biblical thing just emerging in my head with this cast of candidates and you know Trump and all that sort of stuff too as pilot I mean I don't know but right like I can't even articulate it right now because I'm just trying to figure this out but it's it's kind of it's kind of uh, exciting me yeah well <laughs> I agree in revolutionary terms or radical terms or whatever like Marianne is definitely the most John the Baptist motherfucker on the <laughs> in this field. Definitely, That's right. um, yeah. Yang, yeah. Who would Yang be? I'd have to think about it, but that's yeah. a good point. But yeah. there is, regardless, there is this sort of gathering mm-hmm. uh, that's taking place, and I mean that. I don't mean there. I mean in a more like a storm gathering. Sure. Uh, that something, something has already fundamentally shifted right and the dnc is hapless in the face of it and the the question will be the question for us as people interested in this taking shape and and bernie winning out is what will it take to guarantee that the dnc can't steal it this time last time Mm -hmm. it was this juggernaut that there was just no, nothing had been unmasked, you know, outside of people who are close to the party or, you know, political zealots like us. Um, now that's a lot of that's unmasked. And as Bernie's movement gets big enough, there just won't be a way to overcome it. Like no amount of voter suppression will just, he'll just have too many delegates. Mm-hmm. Um, probably now they're going to try to use the, the other reason it gives me hope that, um, Warren is stepping, standing behind Bernie rather than fighting him is hopefully if they, the DNC tries to use Warren as a wedge against Bernie mm-hmm. to push it to a second ballot wherein the superdelegates are activated, thereby fucking Bernie over and handing it to Kamala Harris, 
hopefully Warren will just step, throw her support behind Bernie. Then mm. they can't do anything. Right. So maybe in that loose sense, I support Warren continuing as long as possible, mm-hmm. assuming she has the fucking stones and the integrity to understand what's ultimately better. Right. Um, but that remains to be seen. I don't, you know, she was a Republican until the 90s. She's, you know, been wishy-washy on positions. We don't know where she stands. But hopefully she's opportunistic enough in a good way to see that if she just sticks with Bernie, everybody wins, including her. Mm-hmm. Okay, so <clears throat> how do we get from this horseshit reality to that one? Again, we look to the periphery. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Juan Gonzalez. Welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Protests are continuing in Puerto Rico days after mass demonstrations forced Governor Ricardo Rosselló to step down. It marks the first time in Puerto Rico's history that protests have toppled a sitting governor. Rosselló's last day in office is this Friday. But it remains unclear who will take his place. Justice Secretary Wanda Vasquez is next in line for the office. But on Sunday, she said in a tweet, quote, I have no interest in occupying the governor's post. However, on Monday, Vasquez's spokeswoman then did not rule out her becoming governor. On, on Monday, protesters gathered outside Vasquez's office, calling for her to resign as justice secretary. This is Claudia Sofia Gariaga Lopez, who teaches at Cal State University in Chico. I think that really what we're talking about here is beginning a process of decolonization for Puerto Rico. The system of the fiscal control board, the odious debt that has been imposed upon the Puerto Rican people to pay for years on end, these are all mechanisms of colonization over Puerto Rico. And so we need to address those directly and move on to creating a more just system all over Puerto Rico and then in the United States as well. I think that part of what we see here is a great inspiration for the rest of the country to see that if we mobilize in large numbers, we don't have to wait for impeachment. We don't have to wait for elections in 2020. We can move Trump out of the presidency, as well as all of these other corrupt politicians who are taking advantage of their political position to enrich themselves and push forward policies that benefit private corporations and definitely not the people of the United States. So, the reason, part of the reason I say on the periphery is because Puerto Rico is, Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, Mm -hmm. but Puerto Rico is not a U.S. state. So it is both inside and not inside the U.S. And that provides a very interesting opportunity for radical Mm -hmm. ideas, I think, to take root. And it's important to contextualize Puerto Rico a little bit. It's, you know, it's, again, this place that we're told kind of doesn't exist or we, we just assume is we don't we don't you know, we don't really know anything about it. Um, Submedia did an excellent uh, episode of their show Trouble about uh, student movements, both in Puerto Rico and Chile, as examples of how to take power and how student resistance can be the site of like more generalized uprisings. We, we could also point to Quebec in 2012, where they literally overthrew student organizers who um, organized across different universities in Quebec, uh, literally overthrew the fucking government in Quebec over a few months of like 
protracted protests and street street battles with the cops and all this type of shit, occupations, etc. It almost put occupied a shame in a sense. Um, Puerto Rico has a recent history of radical organizing, uh, particularly in San Juan, where the radical organizers figured out pretty quickly that like they weren't going to get any traction unless they started to kind of interject themselves into these university protests and they saw their role I'm you know I'm sort of abridging what I've seen but they saw their role as sort of agitating to push people's ideas further you know like okay what do you guys want well what have you tried this what what's the harm in maybe doing this going out on strike or doing xyz and so for a while they were the ones who were kind of like you know, looked stupid or uh, kind of just marginal, getting laughed at or just ignored. But then as as the government corruption and et cetera, and like the power structure within the university became more and more like egregiously, you know, either anti-student or there were just a lot of problems, people started to line up with the anarchists and the radicals and they started to take on those tactics of general strikes. And what happened was... Ultimately, um, they started. They they basically took control of San Juan or the university, and they started to experiment with a model wherein the since the government of the city was so corrupt, or the province, or however it was structured, um, the university started to function as a as a de facto council government to to dictate with like in a sort of like non-technocratic expert rule, meaning this academic institution or for Lacan, the university discourse took direct power politically. And to me, this was just shocking because this is so far outside of this is almost the exact opposite of how neoliberal austerity plays out in, in the U S in terms of resistance or whatever. Um, even though this is kind of an exaggerated form of neoliberal cronyism and austerity and shit like that. Um, not the university rule, but the, what the state was trying to do. The, the, so now the Puerto Ricans have overthrown the fucking government, literally. And you have a Cal State professor, uh, a Cal State professor calling for not just increased protests and organizing, but that this proves that you can directly depose Trump without an election Mm -hmm. and that that's what the fuck we should be doing. American citizens are doing. Yeah. That's what they're doing there. And we should be doing nationally. Mm -hmm. Now this is so far outside of what even the fucking left on the fringes would say that it's just, it's glorious. And she's a hundred percent right. I also think that this is a, this is part and parcel, totally unified and parallel to what Bernie's attempting to do, which is to take the problems directly to the people. And in Zizek's celebration of Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the twice-deposed, you know, duly elected by radical majorities, we're talking 75 80% of the vote, uh, president, ex-president of Haiti, Zizek mm-hmm. points out that the Lavalas party, uh, Aristide's party, part of how they were able to take power and part of how they were able to govern was that Aristide was directly responsive to the people on the ground. So this, there was strong labor organizing, uh, community groups, all of that shit, but they were very active and very militant in their own way in a kind of fluid dynamic way. And Aristide would just enact those policies. And you have this short circuit between taking of state power and 
direct action, direct organizing on the streets. The Puerto Ricans have clearly achieved a similar model of this. And so um, I think it's really important that people begin to understand that we don't need to cross over from action on the ground, on the streets, people developing mutual aid networks, developing solidarity committees, developing, you know, affinity groups or collectives or communes or whatever. We don't need to separate that completely from state power. We can, in fact, take state power and then utilize all that power on the ground and short circuit those things if we have a leader who has the fucking integrity and consistency and principled nature such as Bernie has proven to have failures aside for 40 years. If that's true and if that happens, then we get somebody like Allende in power who is so dangerous to the West that the U.S. had to go in and overthrow the government and bomb the fucking country and install uh, a fascist right-wing dictator. And so... This may seem far-fetched. This may seem whatever. It's not. It's just simply we're headed towards social breakdown. The Puerto Rican scenario was probably exacerbated by a fucking hurricane where 5,000 people died. You know, worse, in sheer numbers, a worse disaster than 9-11 that the U.S. government, Trump, didn't respond to. Mm-hmm. I think they are. This is a message from the future. This is where we're headed. Climate disaster massive displacement, massive death, massive economic destruction. And the only way out of that is precisely this type of direct organizing that doesn't ignore state power but aims to take over state power and force it to be responsive to the streets. Without that, I don't know that we have hope for the future. Mm-hmm. I have nothing to add to that other than I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so, okay, and then I just want to add one more thing. Yeah. Um, so this next thing I'm going to read... I'm not going to say who it is first to not color anything, but I think it's interesting. So the, the, uh, this is called How to Live, What to Do, and Where to Start. Liberalism is the ideological monopoly of modernity, tries by veritable media bombardment to create a state of chaos in the consciousness of the people. Their basic weapons are fundamentalism, nationalism, sexism, and modern science as a, quote, new positivist religion. While liberalism, through fundamentalism, controls the conscious of con- conscience of pre-capitalist society, it also controls the citizen of the nation-state and distracts from class contradictions through nationalism. Sexism is their most effective method of keeping the man in permanent control, forcing women to live with constant rape. Positivist science controls the academic world and through it the youth. Thus, there is no way to avoid the compromises that integrate into the system. Against this ideological attack of liberalism, it is of huge importance to find the right answers to the questions, how to live, what to do, and where to start. Until today, the answers of opponents of this system to these questions were ineffective. In all three questions, the answers of modernity gained the upper hand. The question, how to live, was strongly influenced through the development of the modern lifestyle in the last five centuries. In the capitalist modern age, Like never before in history, a homogenous lifestyle was imposed on the people and internalized. All ways of life have been homogenized by universal rules. With this homogenization, only small differences could endure. A rejection of modern life was labeled as weirdness and madness. 
these crazy and insane people were ejected from the system. Few people had the courage to face this danger and continue their resistance. For five centuries, the question of what to do has been planned down to the smallest detail and answered. You should live an individualistic life. Always think of yourself. Say, the only way, the only way is the way of the modern age, and to do what you're entitled to. Your way is clear, and the method is clear. You should do what everyone else is doing. If you're a boss, you should make a profit. If you're a worker, you should work for your wages. To look for other forms of doing is stupidity. If someone insists, the result is being squeezed out of the system. This means unemployment, helplessness, and corruption. Life became as cruel as a horse race. The question where to start is answered by the system of education. Schools and universities are indispensable to becoming successful in the system. The search for the truth and the ideological attitude of democratic modernity offers no doubt with its, with its alternative to capitalist modernity. In answer to these three basic questions, analyzing social identity in all areas and offering solutions from the core, oh, excuse me, and offering solutions forms the core of the search for truth. An ideological attitude means to overcome the ideological hegemony of the ruling modernity by intense critis intensive criticism. Capitalist modernity, which attacks social identity and prefers individualism to community, is far from the truth. To recognize this requires reaching the truth through an economic, ecological, democratic society. The first answer to the question, how to live, what to do, and where to start, is to rebel against the system from within the system. But to fight within the system against that system requires, like the wise men of ancient times, to fight for the truth in every moment, even if it requires dying for it. The questions, how to live and where to start, the answer is to escape the madness and hatred of this life. You have to vomit the system out, out of your stomach, out of your brain, and purify your body of this life. Even if it feels like the most beautiful life in the world, you have to puke everything out. The question, what can be done, can only be answered in the form of organized and conscious practice. In relation to democratic modernity, the answer to these questions is ideological and practically combined with the elements of the alternative system. The vanguard party of former times in democratic modernity must play an institutional and actionist pioneering role. The new task of the new leadership is to build the three main pillars of the system, the democratically economic ecological society for that is <clears throat> for that it is necessary to create qualitatively and quantitatively new academic academies depending on the content economical engineering agroecology democratic policy defense security women's freedom cultural identity history of language science of philosophy religious art etc which criticize not only the academic world of modernity but also create an alternative Without strong academic cadre structures, the remaining pillars of democratic modernity cannot be built. Just like the cadres without the pillars of democratic modernity have no meaning, the other pillars without academic cadres can't be successful. Holisticity is fundamental to success. The fragmentation of ideas, language, and action must be cast aside. The unity between ideas, language, and action is a holiness that must never be lost. Someone who attempts to answer the questions how to live, what to do, and where to start without unified ideas, language, and action should not enter this fight. They fight f the fight for truth cannot be guided by the manipulations of capitalist modernity. The cadres are the brain and the organization. They spread through the veins in the body, the society. 
the reality is holistic and the truth is an expression of this holistic reality. A cadre is a form of action, the action of truth. As the Middle East renews itself, it must carry out a truth revolution. In order to achieve this, a revolution in consciousness and the way and in the way life is needed. It is a revolution for liberation from the ideological hegemony and way of life for, of capitalist modernity. On this point, the people cannot be allowed to become influenced by fundamentalists who are attached to religion or led astray by racial chauvinism. These ideologies will not fight against capitalist modernity, but want nothing more than their piece of cake. They are at the same time the victims and the henchmen of capitalist modernity. Left, feminist, ecological, and cultural movements must, if they are honest in their opposition to capitalist modernity, create the fight for truth holistically. The fight for truth can only succeed if it goes on in all areas of life, in municipal, environmental, and economic communities, democratic cities, and at the local, regional, national, and transnational levels. Without knowing how the disciples and believers of their religions lived and fought at their origins, no search for truth can be su conducted successfully. The Middle East needs to reinvent the wisdom of the, its ancient goddesses. Living like Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, Paul, Mani, Vislev, Karani, Haluk, I'm Ansur, Sebedin, sorry, Yunus, Emery, and Bruno Giordano needs to be revived. The truth of revolution can only be implemented through this heritage. Revolu revolutions and revolutionaries don't die. They prove that they can live if their heritage is upheld. The culture of the Middle East is a culture of unity of ideas, language, and action. Democratic modern modernism will enrich this culture with its critique of capitalist modernity and thus play its historical role. The individual of democratic modernity cannot realize himself without being against the three death riders of capitalist modernity, capitalism, industrialism, and the nation state, without being in constant struggle and by consistent ideas, statements, and actions with the help of the three freedom angels of democratic modernity, the democratic, economic, ecological society, waging, waging a permanent struggle for freedom. Without the academic institutions and social communities, the democratic, pure, and free world cannot be realized. The criticism of the sacred scriptures and the wisdom of the goddesses are significant in their context of instrumentalization by the ruling civilizations and capitalist modernity. What remains about the criticism in our ageless heritage and our social identity? The truth militant in the age of democratic modernity must have this identity internalized in her personality, letting this life live, it, letting this life itself live and live. So, that may have sounded very Western to begin with and uh, extremely progressive as it is. That is by the imprisoned on an island by Turkish PM Erdogan since 1999. That was by Abdullah Okalan, the leader of the um, Kurdish left, left wing party, sure. YPG, YPJ, PKK. So, <clears throat> This is important to me. It's, there, there are a lot of structural things that I think are important. The critique of liberalism the, and the way that he twists. He says, yes, it's true that the academy in its current form is corrupted by capitalist modernity. And it's also the exact site that we need to, that the wellspring of a true movement for democracy can begin to occur. So like, much like the Gandhi quip about when he's asked what he thinks of Western civilization, he says it would be a good idea. 
that's sort of the idea here. Mm -hmm. And so we see then this, this unity in parallel with what happens in Puerto Rico. Uh, and in, in a dark way, what's happened in the West and how austerity has attacked universities as sites of freedom. Because if you undermine leftist theory and the places where it thrives, you undermine the ability for a, a renewed left to emerge outside of a strong labor movement. To me, this sort of encapsulates a lot of what I think needs to happen, ultimately. And again, the Kurds are on the periphery. They're in a part of the map that supposedly doesn't exist. Are they in Iran? Are they in, or are they in Iraq? Are they in Turkey? Are they in Syria? Well, they're in all three and none at the same right. time. And so <clears throat> the Kurdish example, you have the paradox of a country... A, a territory that is surrounded by f ultimately fundamentalist governments where you have the most radical egalitarian form of government in the world functioning, which is in, uh, in the Kurdish, in, in Rojava, Rojava, whatever, um, what is written into law that it, more than 50% of every committee or um, representative body in this system of democratic confederalism has to be women. Women have to be the majority. And so <clears throat> this is unthinkable to the West. So who's the fucking, who, who are the goddamn barbarians? It sure as fuck aren't the Kurds. It's us. <laughs> right. And the other thing that's interesting about the other interesting parallel, how um, Puerto Rico is both inside and not inside the U S the Kurds, go back and forth, sometimes they're supported by the U.S. and sometimes they're bombed by the U.S. Sometimes the U.S. helps them fight off Turkey's, the Turkish bombardment, and sometimes they help the Turks fight the Kurds. And so <clears throat> the Kurds were the reason that ISIS was defeated on the ground. And they were joined by internationalist fighters from the U.S., from the U.K., mm -hmm. from other European countries because there was an open call for anyone in solidarity to come fight ISIS and fight ISIS. They did. And some lost their lives and to watch the funeral processions, uh, for a, for a visceral example of this, I suggest unedited media's, um, short documentary about this. I can't remember the name or on a, sorry, unicorn riot, um, unicorn riots, uh, half hour documentary on this, which is stunning. Um, but the point is like, since we're looking to the future, since we're trying to find a new way, you, again, you have the same fucking structure with Bernie. Bernie is both inside and not inside the Democratic Party. And he's the only way to save the country. And, and I don't care about saving the Democratic Party, but that, that will be the only way. That's so, the, uh, the outcome, nonetheless. Right. I mean, if he wins. I, was, I didn't know if you were going to ask me if I, if I had any sort of... Uh, if I, if I knew who had written that, and I, <laughs> yeah. and I didn't, but um, the, there were clues that, based on the rhetoric or the, some of the ideas, that this was not who I was going to say. But I was all, I was half sure. I was thinking this is this is Marianne Williamson, <laughs> isn't it? Because it sounded a bit like that in a way. That's and so, I mean, to your point, yeah. I'm th again. I'm trying to remember. I'm I'm reimagining the staging of this debate yesterday, and she was literally on the margin. She was on the mm, periphery on the right. very end and sort of shouting in to the center 
and thus pulling folks in her direction. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, again, it was interesting. And I don't know if that was intentional or not on the DNC's part or otherwise, or CNN, whatever. Right. Um, but, I mean, again, allegorically, all of this is taking shape in a terrifically interesting, almost theological uh, way. Right. <laughs> and Okolon is directly referencing the theological, yeah. except in a secular sense. Right. That's why right. he's talking about freedom angels and right. truth militants, and that we need to study religion in order to yeah. understand how it was used as a weapon against the people. Right. And so, like, yeah, in, in sort of a bizarre way, Marianne I, occupies that space because mm -hmm. she's sort of using these, what most people see as, like, she's she's participating in the short circuit too, but she's doing it more directly ideologically than uh, in terms of, like, policy or something like Bernie is doing mm -hmm. um, in this meaning like she's taking ideas that for most people on the left are just woo are just total bullshit mm -hmm. uh, really kind of played out hippie type themes of kind of what not to do, mm -hmm. how to depoliticize things, uh, how to depoliticize politics She's taking that and she's completely reversing it by trying to directly take political power. Mm -hmm. Th that's the sort of like, I don't know if it's dialectical exactly, but that's the sort of reversal that is needed to kind of break with this consensus in the in the way kind of you're you're talking about where if if not for that she wouldn't be dangerous or as Vox says scary. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Precisely because she's trying to, I don't think she's cynical. Like, I don't think she doesn't believe any of this, but mm -hmm. when pressed, she often will like on the Chapo interview, she was often, if she was pushed to like, say, well, why aren't you just a Marxist or whatever? She's like, it doesn't matter. We're all, we're talking about the same thing. And so she's interestingly not saying we just need spirituality. She's saying, no, these are really material problems, mm -hmm. but whether or not I call it Marxism is immaterial. Now, whether or not we agree with this in this room doesn't matter. It's just fascinating that she's the only person I've ever seen try to really use this to take actual political power. Mm -hmm. And so there's something that seems ridiculous about it, and it is from the perspective of cynical power games, but that doesn't negate the ideological battle that she seemed to be, seems to be um, engaging in. So it's interesting that you... S you say this kind of reads like Marianne stuff because he, Oklahoma started a revolution mm -hmm. that has had a real, you know, militants following it for 20 years. This was written in 1999, oh. I believe. Um, and they, they won, they established mm -hmm. a state. Now it's in a precarious right. status often, but nevertheless it, it persists. And so, <clears throat> Um, I think it, in, I guess maybe the point is, yeah, we should take this all a little bit more seriously, mm -hmm. uh, or at least understand the damage that Marianne can do the type of damage to the democratic center that Trump did to the Republican right. establishment. The same way Bernie, you know, Bernie sowed the seeds, Bernie opened the space for someone like Marianne, but Marianne's also deft enough to understand that she's better off. Well, not just she, but we're all better off if Mike Gravel's in that fucking debate. Mm -hmm. And that's why she pitched her support behind him. And that's that's kind of unprecedented in politics as, as far as I've... In a primary remember. before... Yeah. And not even a primary. There right. haven't been any... Yeah. 
election. She's a doing this like months before. Yeah. So like, there's a, that other side of the leadership where, like, I just yeah, I just I think that people underestimate her to their own detriment mm-hmm. ultimately, and the um, you know, an Oklahoma here is pitching like all these religious heroes, mm-hmm. not not negating their effect, which is I think something that we're you and I correct me if I'm wrong, are committed to doing mm-hmm. politically, which is to fully understand like what what was the political potency and radicality of someone like figures like Paul, like Jesus, like Amos, like um, <clears throat> John the Baptist, it, mm-hmm. Mary Magdalene, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but so anyway, the that's sort of like an aside, but I think that the idea here is I think it's it behooves us to understand that the desperation of our situation requires us to look to Kurdistan for an answer for what maybe you know how we should live and what we should do and an alleged sort of proto-Marxist witch. <laughs> right? Right. If, I mean, if the critics in the center and on the right mm-hmm. of Marianne Williamson are to be sort of acknowledged, um, I, I, I agree. I think there's a, there's a certain hope in her candidacy. And um, I I hope you're right that she continues for quite some time. Yeah.